Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm really happy to bring you my conversation with Cooper Stainbrook. Cooper is a partner at Ibex Investors, the firm that you've heard speak on the podcast in the past about their Israeli-focused investment strategy. In this episode, I'm talking with Cooper about his research and views of the US commercial real estate property market, and particularly the office market and the decline that it's experienced post-COVID and what that means going forward and some of the numbers involved. I think you'll find it absolutely fascinating. I was up in the US on a recent trip and uh, one of the things that really stood out to me was the state of their, what they call downtown areas. So I thought it would be great to share that research uh, with your listeners. Please remember that this podcast isn't designed to be specific personal advice or even general advice, nor is it. Please remember to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. You can always email me suggestions, feedback. We love that. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Cooper Stainbrook, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Cooper, as we like to do, perhaps you can get us away by introducing yourself to our listeners. Sure, so uh, I work at a firm called Ibex Investors. Uh, We are a Denver-based and Tel Aviv-based investment firm, uh, really investing into uh, main verticals. So Israel as a vertical and mobility disruption as a vertical. Um, Within that, we we manage several funds. Uh, One, a venture capital fund focused on early stage investing within Israel. Uh, and then we have a later stage and public equity fund uh, within Israel as well. And that is what I'm responsible for is managing the the public equity side um, of our Israel fund. Give us a little bit of background about yourself and what you've done. Sure. So I started my career um, at a spin out from the Yale Endowment office. Uh, it's called Edshill Endowment Partners. Uh, and basically their model was, hey, we're going to bring the best of breed from endowment management to these smaller endowments, these 100 million, 200 million, $500 million endowments that don't really have the uh, economies of scale for a full investment team. Uh, but if we can pool those assets, uh, then all of a sudden we can bring this institutional quality management uh, to these smaller schools, these smaller nonprofits. Um, Really great learning experience. I was one of four on the investment team there, uh, and we were investing across asset classes, both through external managers and then also running several strategies uh, in-house, specifically uh, fixed income and then uh, an options hedge fund replication strategy. Um, So great training ground. I got to sit across the table from the best investment managers in the world, ask them, hey, what's your process? You know, why do you like this company? Why do you not like this company, et cetera? Uh, what are some of the mistakes you've made? How are you thinking about hiring? Uh, you name it, right? Everything uh, that runs the gamut in in the investment industry. Um, subsequent to that, I, I joined Ibex seven years ago, uh, and I've been uh, I've had multiple roles here. Um, when I first joined, I was focused on a strategy that was really derivatives and, and kind of options uh, focused, um, and subsequently have taken on more and more of the traditional uh, fundamental equity role, um, and so. You know, one of the things that we do here is we do try to marry those two asset classes. Um, I think one of the uh, opportunities within the investment industry is 
sitting at the, the intersection of these asset classes, right? The financial management world is so siloed. You have your fixed income specialist, you have your volatility specialist, and you have your equity specialist, and they don't talk to each other. Um, we think one of the, the big opportunities in the, in the investment world is uh, marrying the asset classes. And Cooper, I, I think I've, I've got a call out. I, I, met, I met you on a trip uh, where we were looking at some investee companies up in, in Israel. And then uh, I've been lucky enough to visit and meet with you on a recent trip to Denver, San Francisco and Los Angeles. And I'm just back from meeting with a bunch of managers and in people in investment markets. And I was lucky enough to have a game of golf with you. I discovered up in Israel that you're a very good golfer. And in fact, you were at Yale and played on the Yale golf team. Um, so you're a good golfer to boot. Um, I think you also saw yourself a little short. I, it's interesting when I was Googling around and I knew of this, but I, I, the, the headline, there is a Bloomberg headline that reads, Tiny Hedge Fund just made 8,600 on VIXBET. And I think you were involved in some of the research that led to that trade. Can you tell us a little bit about it? That's right. Yeah. Uh, back in 20, 2018, February 2018, there was an event uh, that's now known as either Volmageddon or Volpocalypse, you name it. Um, but essentially what happened was uh, there were these inverse ETF products um, specifically focused on VIX futures, uh, and they'd become very crowded. Um, and so what a partner of mine uh, and, and I realized was, hey, this is going to lead at some point to just a mass spike in the VIX. There's going to be forced covering uh, amongst these these VIX futures, uh, and it's going to spiral out of control. What that meant is that we were able to identify a, a derivatives trade um, that would benefit from this. And so as it played out, um, yeah, we were able to thankfully uh, capitalize very nicely on it and uh, kind of help put IBEX on the, on the map uh, with some press. <laughs> very nice uh, little uh, notch on the belt there. So. On that recent trip up to the US, there were really two things that absolutely stood out to me. One was inflation. And, you know, an anecdotal point from that, I went for a morning juice and you asked for the sort of green, healthy juice. And I got the small one. This is up in the Bay Area at the Stanford Mall, actually. Um, and, and you know, this isn't a big whopper oversized US type drink. This was the, the small sort of David Clark uh, being healthy type of drink. And I was amazed that um, it came out to me and the cost was 23 Australian dollars, you know, 15 US um, from, you know, this chain chain store type uh, juice. And, and then later that day, my, my buddy said, look, we've got friends over. Can you duck up the road and get three bits of salmon? And that cost me 83 Australian dollars for three small portions of salmon. Now, granted, Stanford Mall isn't, you know, the cheapest place in the world and the Australian dollar exchange rate doesn't help. But $15 for a small juice, um, you know, it really drove home to me that inflation um, is or has been alive and well in the US. The other big one that I took out of the trip was the state of commercial real estate and particularly office. And I mentioned this to you actually when we were playing golf. Uh, and, you know, you, you, you talked about this paper that you had written on this and you know, the, the paper is just outstanding. There's 45 pages of research that you've put together. And I'm hopeful that we could have a conversation about that. And the thing I was struck with, and what it appears for me from an outsider coming in, that you see that what you would call your downtown areas, and Australians would call that 
your CBD, your central business district, um, that these areas got shut down during COVID and, you know, there was no activity and all the workers didn't come in um, and all the businesses in there shut down because there was no people to, you know, the newsstands, the coffee stores, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Post-COVID and work from home, particularly in professional sectors, um, there's been a lot of cities where people haven't really come back or come back at all, which has been really exacerbated by the homelessness issue um, in the US probably doesn't have the same social security safety net that Australia does. And during COVID, um, you know, those areas became inhabited by homeless people and boarded up. And, you know, the level of safety people feel in those areas now, um, you know, I think it's been some of those democratic leaders in those cities have also changed laws where, you know, if you if you get caught stealing minor goods, you know, you don't really get charged, which has probably made things worse. Um, but I was just really taken back that um, some of these downtown areas, even in Denver, um, San Francisco especially is probably number two on the list behind um, New York. Um, but these downtown areas have really, really suffered and we're starting to see that come through from valuations. Do you maybe want to talk a little bit about that report and some of the research that you've done. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you kind of nailed it on the head, right? It's it, it's been clarified, or I guess classified as the um, the donut effect, right? The hollowing out of the center of the city, and everyone's moving to the suburbs, and so you have this hole in the middle of the city. Um, what it means in terms of the numbers in office buildings, uh, you're seeing vacancy rates that are above the great financial crisis in terms of office buildings um, in, in downtown areas. So, I mean, you mentioned San Francisco, which is obviously a hotspot um, with the tech companies and the remote work and the ability to, to work from anywhere. Um, so, you know, vacancy rates in San Francisco, around 33%. But you look at Houston, 32%. Atlanta is at 31%. LA is at 30%. So it's not isolated to just New York and San Francisco, uh, as some of the press uh, may have you believe, right? Um, and this is just, you know, it's an absolutely astonishingly large problem. So if you uh, go by estimates from uh, Cushman Wakefield or uh, Boston Consulting Group, you have somewhere around 1.4 to 1.5 billion square feet uh, of office space that will be completely obsolete by 2030. Uh, uh, this is just a massive, massive problem, right? Um, so the scale is huge. Uh, I think it's pretty widespread. So if you look at uh, the number of office properties that have uh, had loans that were made in the past eight years, uh, effectively all of those, the, the property values are now worth less than the loans that were taken out. Um, so you have not only kind of uh, vacant buildings, but you also have uh, legacy loans that will have to be dealt with in, in one manner or another, uh, whether that's default or uh, distress sales, um, equity injections, you name it. And for instance, the REITs or the listed trusts that hold these offices, um, what sort of percentages are they down? Yeah, so uh, kind of the big three. So you have uh, SL Green, you have Vornado, and you have Boston Properties. Uh, all down uh, anywhere between 60 and 75% uh, from their pre-COVID levels. So, you know, very, uh, just huge drawdowns on the equity basis. Um, now, some of those have seen a, a slight pop this week. And by slight, I mean, uh, SL Green's up, you know, 21%, right? 
And that's because you saw a property transact and there's green shoots of, well, you know, maybe this isn't so bad. Uh, so there's a property thing... in New York that got bought for an astonishing value, right? Uh, that's that's correct. So SL Green sold uh, its 50% stake in 245 Park, which is a property that's uh, literally on the block of Grand Central Station, right? So it's mm-hmm. basically as premier of a property as you could find. Um, so they sold their stake at a $2 billion property valuation, um, which is actually down from $2.2 billion in 2017. So despite this, you know, basically ideal property selling for 10% lower than the property value in 2017, uh, you saw a 20% uh, increase in the equity of the, of the REIT. And that just shows you kind of how much pain could be priced in uh, to, to these REITs, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and let's just talk a little bit about the cause of this and and how it's been driven. You know, work from home. You know, I think one of the anecdotal pieces of evidence. You know, I was talking to a manager up there, and they said, "Look, the legal firm that they've used for you know the last fifteen years is now totally work from home. Uh, they're still charging a thousand dollars an hour, but they're work from home." How widespread in the U.S. is uh, work from home? Yeah, so um, there's kind of, I guess, multiple aspects to that, right? So you have pure uh, work from home, uh, but then you also have a kind of hybrid workforce, right? Or where you're sharing office space, you're sharing, uh, yeah, you know, seats in an office, you're going to three days a week, something like that. Uh, if you look at just pure occupancy, uh, it's roughly at about 50% of where it was in pre-COVID levels. Um but you see, you know, it varies dramatically by by city, right? So on the highest day of the week in Austin, you have about 72% uh, occupancy. Uh, and you compare that to Philadelphia, which might be at about the high 40s. Um, similarly, if you look at uh, companies' plans for, I guess, new, um, new space and, and new leases, uh, it's down dramatically. So it's down... Uh, anywhere from you know thirty to fifty percent in terms of how much they expect to uh, to take on when their leases expire, um, and and you know this is really important because when you look at uh, the leases that are rolling off, you have about twenty five percent or so of of leases that are rolling off over the next three years. Um, so Cooper, how sorry, does this sorry, result? I, I, I just. I just misspoke there. It's actually sixty percent of leases that are that are rolling off over the next three years. So, um, you know, a dramatic kind of reshaping of this office space. And and how does this play out? Do people end up coming back to office, or do you think that you know that horse is bolted and you know office is never going to be the same again? Um, you know, I <laughs> everyone has their own view on this, right? I personally am of the belief that you'll have kind of the three day a week uh, and and potentially uh, a four day week. I don't think Fridays are going to be fully back in the office anytime soon. Um, I also don't think you're going to see kind of mass expansion of office space, right? So it, Google, Facebook, uh, Microsoft, et cetera, we're taking massive amounts of, of new lease space and new um, kind of uh, square footage over the past couple of years, they've completely stopped that and they've actually converted to, hey, we're going to sublease uh, as much office space as we can. Um, 
so I, I I don't have a strong view. I think it'll be somewhere between where we were. I don't think we're going completely remote. Um, I also don't think we'll be back to a five day a week. Every uh, employee has their own office or cubicle or or you name it. And Cooper, one of the things you talk about in your paper is the fact that there's already been um, some meaningful defaults and some people have been sort of upside down on the money they they borrowed, some investment firms. And, and, and they've literally walked away from these. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, if you look at just kind of high level, um, you have $64 billion of distressed commercial assets in Q1. Uh, of that, you have about $18 billion of office space. That being said, uh, MSCI also estimates that there's $155 billion of potentially troubled office space, right? So you have this kind of pipeline um, that's working its way through commercial real estate tends to be a very slow moving sector, right? Because you do have, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's a seven year lease that it takes time to roll off or you have, and the valuations are done normally quarterly or something like this. Exactly. Exactly. But if you look at some of the leading indicators, they're, um, dramatically accelerating. So for example, if you look at delinquency rates, 30 days past due, uh, in May, they were 4%. That's up from 2.7% in April, right? And 1.6% from a year ago. So you're seeing a, a dramatic ramp in these delinquency rates. Uh, similarly, if you look at special servicing amongst office properties, uh, it went from 4.7% a year ago. Now it's at 6.1%. So again, ramping pretty dramatically. We're not yet at the GFC kind of levels, but one can see a path towards uh, towards reaching those kind of levels. Um, in terms of, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, go for it. Yeah, interesting in that you know there's been a few of these properties. I think in in one of your um, the graphs you show or the tables you show, you know you, these aren't insignificant names. You're talking about people like Blackstone and Brookfield, who um, and I noticed the owners of Westfield um, just I think a couple of weeks ago walked away from. Uh, Westfield downtown in San Francisco and just handing back the keys to the debt providers. Yeah, that's right. Um, so you have these very large financial firms that are saying, hey, it does not make sense for us uh, to inject more equity into these properties. Um, they are that far kind of underwater, right? So you have, um, you know, the Westfield Mall, certainly a, a big kind of uh, trophy property. But even if you look into, call it LA uh, real estate, right? So you have... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the top three dozen office properties in terms of square footage uh, are all underwater. So the average is $230 in debt per square foot. Uh, and they just saw th the only major sale this year um, saw $154 per square foot. So you have you know, a discrepancy of almost $80 per square foot. That's how far they're underwater. And that's why you're seeing uh, these large players just turn over the keys rather than uh, make up that difference via equity. And Cooper, how widespread is this issue? You, you, you talk about in your paper a little bit about um, some cities that are involved and you alluded at the front, you know, is this widespread across most uh, cities in the US? Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, uh, everyone's aware of the Sunbelt kind of benefiting from COVID. Um, so you see a little bit less distress in the southern cities. Um, that being said, uh, I kind of mentioned, you know, Houston, Atlanta, Chicago, Seattle, um, you know, Washington, D.C., all of those have 20 percent plus vacancy rates. 
uh, in the in their office space. Um, so, you know, across cities um, of just kind of huge vacancies where um, it's it's tough to see a way out when you have those kind of vacancy rates in addition to kind of the debt costs going up, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. Yeah, it's interesting that, um, you know, in Sydney, by contrast, and even Melbourne, as I've traveled to them uh, in the last few weeks, reside in Sydney, um, you know, you're still queuing to go get your lunch. Um, There's lots of people about, um, it's quite different, but one of the things I've always been amazed at is how willing people in the US are to travel across country for jobs and the mobility of the workforce, uh, which almost, I think, stems from the cultural effect of going off to university. Um, that people will pick up their family and go across country for work. But it also seems that when I was talking to people up there a few weeks ago, a lot of people who actually moved cities during COVID because they worked out that, hey, I I can work, I can go and have a big house in somewhere that's a bit sunnier, as you're referring to, um, you know, be close to a nice golf course and have a better quality of life and work remotely. Um, Has that played into this issue as well? You have the, the cost of living arbitrage, right? Um, mm-hmm. I do think it's played into it somewhat. Um, you know, I think it might be somewhat overstated in terms of, for example, the New York uh, kind of office space market. Uh, I think San Francisco is probably being hurt by move away uh, from the city more so than, than New York is. Uh, with New York, it's much more a people just don't want to commute, right? A hour and a half long commute from Long Island to Manhattan it uh, doesn't sound as appealing as, as it once did. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's where you see the hollowing out there is it's less, if you look at apartment uh, rents in New York, they're at all time highs. But if you look at office uh, rents, they're they're obviously very distressed. And so um, I guess that would be my, my kind of metric that I would look at if you were looking at cities in terms of move away and the stress that that has caused is how are the living expenses comparing to the office expenses? It's interesting. We see that in Sydney that, you know, Mondays and Fridays are very quiet on the roads, um, particularly if it's poor weather. Um, But, you know, the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays are much more alive. And friends of mine who own hospitality venues and and pubs, as we'd say in Australia, um, you know, tell me those trading trends have kind of moved a little bit. What used to be a Friday night is now Thursday night, etc., um, so we've definitely seen that. And the other you know, piece of evidence, I've got a good friend who runs the futures business for an investment bank here in Sydney. And uh, he was telling me that one of his traders coming back from COVID had sort of said, look, you know, in, in the past I had to, um, you know, get up an hour early, commute into work and start at 8 a.m., which means I have to leave at 7, but working from home I can just stroll into my office at 8 a.m. How about I leave home at 8 and start at 9 Um you know, under this new regime post-COVID. So, um, yeah, people people are optimising in that area. You alluded there, Cooper, to some of the other asset classes that this may affect. And, and I was astounded when I was up in San Francisco, I was talking to a fellow that was telling me, you know, he, he owned quite a few um, tourist properties in San Francisco and they were still going great guns despite office and the downtown area being hollowed out. Um, how is this playing out with other commercial real estate um, areas of the market? 
Yeah, so to your point, commercial real estate is very diversified, right? It's not a homogenous uh, asset class. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other kind of main category of commercial real estate that I see uh, struggling over the next year to two years is multifamily uh, apartments. And and the reason for that is mostly because multifamily was able to uh, keep up with inflation by pushing rents very dramatically, at least within the U.S. Um, during 2021, 2022. Um, so, however, Cooper, do you want to just define multifamily because it's not a real asset class that's very well known in Australia, I don't think. Sure. So when I say multifamily, I mean uh, apartment buildings mostly, uh, condos, um, basically the, any kind of- These are where they are built for rent. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Whereas in Australia, the model much more tends to be a developer will sell them off the plan um, you know, prior to completion or very soon after completion. There's very little build to rent in Australia. Ownership is far higher. Right. Okay. Um, and, and yeah, so these are assets that are built to rent. They're, they're servicing, um, I guess, the market that cannot afford to buy a single family home uh, in the U.S. That's mm-hmm. kind of their core consumer, right? Um, because single family home ownership has become so expensive in the U.S., multifamily uh, property owners had dramatic leverage, right? They were able to uh, push these rents uh, higher and, and their consumers basically had no other option. Right, except to to accept the uh, increases in rent, uh, that has changed over the last two quarters pretty dramatically. Um, so you saw multifamily rents and apartment rents uh, their their growth kind of peak out um, at around fifteen percent in twenty twenty one. Subsequently, that's come down uh, in Q four twenty twenty two, Q one twenty twenty three. You actually saw rents decline. Um, and so on a year over year basis, you're running at about four and a half percent, uh, growth in the rent. Well, that sounds fine. Um, their operating costs have gone up, uh, pretty dramatically and their operating costs are now increasing at a faster pace than they're able to push through, uh, these rent increases. And so what that means is that you end up in this situation, uh, where you have, uh, operating costs exceeding income on multifamily properties. And this is, a MSCI estimates this is a, a $47 billion uh, problem, right? Um, that's under under today's market. The other reason that I think multifamily will struggle over the next year or two years is that you have a wave of supply coming online. Uh, so if you looked at the end of 2022, you had the greatest number of multifamily units under construction since 1970. So just a huge amount of, of property development that was started during the boom years of 2020, 2021, the start of 2022, interest rates were very low. Uh, it did not not take much to uh, to make the math work, right? And everyone had seen this uh, this benefit of multifamily property during COVID, which was, hey, you know, we still have full occupancy. Uh, we're able to pass through rents. It's an inflation hedge. Um, it's a very compelling story, right? Uh, but what you saw now is that in Q1 2023. Uh, you had the largest number of net unit unit growth ever in multifamily units. Um, there were 65% more units that are going to be coming online in 2023 than there were in 2022, uh, and even more in 2024 than you'll have in 2023. These projects have already been started, so these developers cannot cancel them, right? You're, you can't stop a half-built building um, mm-hmm. unless you're willing to just walk away from the equity. Uh, and so effectively, you have supply that's coming online um, 
that is going to be kind of swamping the market, in my opinion, and, and bringing down rents even further. And are there any areas of the market that have been well shielded from this? You know, top of mind might come industrial or logistics. Yeah. So if you're looking at multifamily or sorry, if you're looking at commercial real estate um, areas that are showing strength, exactly. You named it uh, industrial. You don't see any signs of dis- uh, distress um, logistics in terms of the e-commerce boom. You're still seeing plenty of uh, of demand for that space. Um, I think Prologue is just uh, bought bought 2.1 billion or something like that of, of Blackstone properties in the uh, logistics space. Um, so you're still seeing. Uh, kind of all-time high prices there and and strength in those areas. And what have you seen with uh, residential ordinary mom and dad homes um, across the U.S.? Yeah, so, I mean, this is one of the big differentiators between single-family real estate in the U.S. and commercial real estate in the U.S., which is that single-family real estate in the U.S., we have these 30-year fixed mortgages, right, Mm -hmm. where you can go out and you can lock in in 2020 and 2021, you could lock in a 2.9% 30-year fixed mortgage. Uh, what that has meant is that individuals are very reluctant to move and buy a new home that they're going to have to pay 7% on their mortgage, um, simply because the prices have not come down. And so their monthly payment is going to go up dramatically if they do that. right? And so what that has meant is that single-family home ownership uh, and and property market has essentially just the volume has dried up completely. And what you're seeing is that anyone who wants to buy a new home uh, as a single family home buyer, they're going to the the home builders themselves. And so if you look at, you know, the Lenars of the world, uh, their stock prices have done quite well. And that's because they're effectively the only supply uh, in the market. The reason that I say single family uh, real estate is different than commercial real estate is that in commercial real estate, you don't have these 30 year fixed you know, loans, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a commercial mortgage cliff that is coming up where you have properties that have decisions to make. Do we go out and refinance at a higher interest rate? Do we turn over the keys? Uh, do we inject equity? You name it. And um, the rates on what sort of rate increases will those people be facing? Yeah. So if you look at the the weighted average coupon um, in the mid mid threes in 2021 and 2022, um, that's gone to about the mid sixes now. Um, mm-hmm. So pretty dramatic uh, increase in terms of the interest rate. Um, in terms of the the size of refinancing that's going to need to occur, uh, you have $1.1 trillion worth of commercial mortgages that are coming due in 2023 and 2024. Um, so just a, a huge amount of, uh, I guess, volume that's going to need to uh, be sorted out. So Cooper, the the data and the research that you've put together seems very, very compelling. Um, To me, the $64 million question is, well, how do people make money out of this? Um, What are your thoughts or where are you at on thinking about that? Yeah, well, if uh, if any of your listeners have have a great idea, I'm I'm all ears. But uh, no, we've thought about a couple different things. So uh, we don't short uh, at IBEX. Um, We're long only. Um, so, you know, we do have kind of, uh, a longer term view on this, right? It's more avoid the pockets of pain. Um, that being said, you could think of some, some pretty obvious ones like commercial brokers. So, uh, if you look at CMBS issuance, it's down 75% year over year. Uh, if you look at transaction volume of, of commercial properties, those are down 66% year over year. 
And so, I mean, you compare these two in the great financial crisis, they troughed it down 80%. Um, and, and so commercial brokers are just going to see kind of a, a dry up in terms of their volumes and the commissions that they can uh, extract. Um, so that's maybe one place I would look at uh, for stress. The other one is unfortunately regional uh, banks in the US. So of the uh, $5.6 trillion of um, commercial real estate mortgages that are outstanding, banks hold 2.8 trillion of that. Uh, and specifically regional banks hold $1.9 billion of commercial real estate mortgages. So they have a massive amount of exposure here. Um, they've increased ex this exposure at pretty much the most inopportune time, unfortunately. So in 2018, uh, they were roughly, regional banks were roughly 17% of uh, the CRE market. They expanded that to 27% in 2022. So they got very aggressive in commercial real estate mortgages at pretty much the worst time. Um, so we could see some some pain there. And I think that's really how, unfortunately, this, this problem trickles into the broader economy, right? Is you have banks take losses on their balance sheets. They then tighten their credit lending for every other type of lending that they're doing, whether it's to businesses, mom and pops, you name it. Because you referenced the GFC a few times and, um, you know, you certainly saw a lot of people make a lot of money scooping up and buying single home, multi-home, uh, a whole heap of properties that, you know, we saw pictures, you know, of Las Vegas, uh, residential homes where people had walked away from them and just handed back the keys and, you know, the pools were full of mosquitoes and there was problems, et cetera. But people made a lot of money scooping those up at low, low values. Um, it would appear from my conversations and research that a lot of people are sort of circling, thinking about that, but they're not just sure when the time is and you actually talk in your paper uh, about this uh, sort of 150 billion dollars I think it is of dry powder in the sector so how do you think going forward this plays out yeah exactly so there are certainly uh, opportunistic buyers that are out there and I would say that's one of the kind of mitigating factors to uh, this issue right is that you do have this dry powder sitting on the sidelines um, I think you're going to have to see defaults and you're going to have to see the lenders take back over the properties. Um, I, I simply think the, the bid ask spread in the market right now is too wide. Um, you have these REITs, whether they're public or private, that if they actually mark down their properties to the fair value, uh, they're kind of underwater on the, at, the, at the REIT level, right? So um, they're going to be very reluctant to do that um, until they have to. Uh, and so I think it'll take at least a year or two to fully play out, right? You need mm -hmm. to get through this wave of mortgages that are coming due. You need to get through the three years that I mentioned um, where you have 60% of the of the office leases coming due and you see corporates actually shrink their, their office space. Um, and then you'll have uh, people that have their hand forced, right? Um, I guess the one thing that I would mention on kind of the more opt op optimistic side uh, is that you do have a couple mitigating factors. So one is that a lot of this issue is simply due to higher interest rates. Um, that's something that the Federal Reserve can handle pretty quickly and, and uh, you know, if they, if they need to, right? If there is enough stress to the uh, system, the Federal Reserve can solve this issue and allow for these properties to be refinanced. Um, now, maybe you would say, well, it's great that they have that option, but with inflation running at you know five percent, do they really have that option? Um, we'll see. 
we'll see which uh, which problem is is of greater importance to the Fed. Um, the other uh, mitigating factor that I do want to mention is that loan to value ratios are lower uh, now than they were pre the uh, GFC. Um, and so you do have a bit more of an equity cushion um, across the system. Um, so that could also help kind of uh, allow the banks to at least avoid losses. You might still have the equity wiped out, but you're not going to be deep uh, into the loan value at least. Cooper, your insights um, and the research you've put together in these areas has just been fascinating. Um, thank you for sharing um, a lot of your thoughts and the research in this area. Really appreciate it um, and, and a lot of valuable data and information and insight there. Thank you very much for joining us at Inside the Rope. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.